Bonjour, everybody. Welcome to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. This is our third episode. I'm your host, Cole Primo. And I'm your other host, Leah Lem. How's it going, Cole? Uh, it's going very well. It's a very sunny day out from a long week of rain. That's great. You know, we like to talk about weather in Minnesota. That's true. Like, I could not believe how much rain we got up north. But, you know, it, it kept the woodpecker away from our house. That's like on our gutters. An annoying woodpecker. Something I don't deal with. No, sometimes we make up words. What we think he's like trying to communicate to us, like, Gabby's hot bard food. You know, when he hits the gutter. Gabby's hot And we hope you're doing well too. We're glad to be with you today. Heck yeah. Today's show is all about family. Like us, we're family. <laughs> You can really tell that we're family, too. Yeah, when you got that short haircut, you definitely hated that because you looked like me. <laughs> I, I, You know what? Looking back at those old photos, we were the same. Pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> anyway, yeah. some families don't look alike, right? Family can be people that you aren't necessarily blood relatives with. I don't know. How would you define family? I guess just... Uh, People that you love, people that you care for, and people that you want to do well. Something like that. Yeah, absolutely. So in this episode, we have awesome people. Yeah. Right? Brilliant, amazing Native folks. And guess what? All women today. There you go. <laughs> and we're talking about finding family. Yeah, because in the Native community, a lot of families have been disrupted one way or another by the government. No kidding. <laughs> But there is also all of this inspiring work, inspiring stories of people finding that family again, yeah. you know, and finding their identity, their inner light. And we are happy to have them share that with us. Okay, I have some data here. <clears throat> The latest data from the state of Minnesota is from 2016, which reads native kids are removed from their homes at more than 17% of the rate of white children. Thousands have grown up in and out of the system and the vast majority in non-native homes. Guess what happens when you're put into a non-native home and you're a native child? You're going to lose touch with your history and culture. Yeah, that is definitely not a surprise. And foster care is kind of a tricky topic. Every Native person knows there are kids in unsafe, abusive situations, and those kids and those families need help to get, you know, back on track and move forward with their lives and all that good stuff. But mm. is it happening? We know from a lot of different people that the public foster care system that's set up to help often isn't doing the job. But we're going to start with a success story. Ooh. A story about a wonderful little Ojibwe girl becoming a part of a wonderful Ojibwe family. Our producer, Lori, is in the house with us. Hey, how you doing? What's up, Lori? I'm good. How are you? Very good. Lori? Yes? You met Heidi Grika and her daughter, Jasmine, I hear. Yes, they're fantastic. If you're a Native kid and you need a foster mom, you're really lucky to land Heidi Grika. Awesome. Let's hear from her. Why did you want to do foster care? Well, I'm, I'm Native American. I'm a tribal member from the White Earth Nation. And um, I grew up as a foster child myself. 
Well, I was born in Monoman, Minnesota, on the White Earth Reservation, until I was put into foster care, and I'm not exactly sure of the dates of that. But I was adopted when I was seven by a non-Native family and grew up in the northern suburbs of Minneapolis. I never really found out that I was a Native American until I applied for my passport. It was really hard to get access to any records. And my mother, my adopted mother, didn't really have anything that she could offer me. Because I asked her, I said, well, did they tell you anything about my parents or my family? And she said, no. She said, they just said that we were part Native. And I think when you're growing up that way, there's also a lot of confusion. You know, it wasn't until much later when I actually met my siblings and then at one point met my biological mother that I was able to start to feel comfortable going out more in the community. I was already almost 50 years old and I had always wanted to do this, to adopt a child. And I was prepared to do it on my own as a single mother. And so it worked out great because, you know, Herb and I got married and we were able to adopt Jasmine together. Jasmine had been in foster care for a few years before she met Heidi. So my first um, home was non-native and it was really unfortunate because it was because they get stipends um, for the child or ho however many children they have, foster children they have. Um, and in that situation, they were using the stipends on their own family, not me. So there would be times where, like at dinner time, um, a lot of times I'd be eating alone at a table or if there was another foster kid, it'd be the foster kid table and then the family would be sitting at another table. And there's like one memory I remember specifically where they were going to the pool, it's like a swimming pool, and I was like already going to go. But then the foster mom kind of turned to me and said, oh, you're not going, you're staying here. But they were all going to the swimming pool. Oh, holy smokes. <laughs> Usually I'm pretty even keeled, not outragey, but just really? to hear how she was treated, I get rage. <laughs> and, you know, I'm really glad that things turned out well for her, but... I know that there are good families out there that can take care of Native kids. They are out there. Jasmine left that house when she was six or seven, she can't remember, and that's when she met Heidi Grieca and her husband Herb. And I remember coming here, all eating dinner, but then I remember, I think I drank like six glasses of milk or something. That's like what I remember from being here for the first time at dinner, just chugging all of this milk. You know why, what, what the deal is with this, whenever I listen to this, is that she drinks all this milk. But how many natives are lactose intolerant? Like 95%. Are they? I didn't know that. <laughs> I, I, okay, I we need another episode on that it's now, just, I guess. I Because <laughs> I didn't know that. Natives and lactose intolerance. That's a, that's a big issue. It's a public health crisis. <laughs> Next podcast series. Okay. So Heidi and Jasmine are so great, and um, what a happy story that Jasmine ended up with Heidi. I was really amazed that I could have my own room, my own bed. Obviously, for any child to know that there's a bed or a room waiting for them is an instant comfort, especially when you've been in foster homes, like I stated, or with your bio mom, kind of homeless and car hopping or home hopping, couch hopping in unfamiliar places. So to kind of have the comfort of being in a home that felt like home. I attached to it really easily. <laughs> By then, Jasmine's biological mother had pretty much disappeared. But she did have a relationship with her biological dad. He was a member of the Red Lake Nation. He wasn't in any kind of shape to take care of her, but he stayed involved with her. 
I don't remember the day it happened, but I remember when it happened of my dad, my bio dad approaching me, asking me if I enjoyed living with them, if I um, really liked them and how I would feel if I was to live with them forever. And I had no issues. And I think looking back at it now, it really comforted me to know that my connection with my dad wasn't going to be cut off. So after the adoption, Jasmine and Heidi both started learning more about their Native heritage, and they found mentors to help them. Heidi joined the Three Fires Council, and she enrolled Jasmine in programs at the American Indian Center. You know, we started going to ceremonies, taking Jasmine to powwows and things like that. And so we sort of found out a lot about our culture together. And I got to see how a lodge was built, and I got to see a water ceremony, and to bless the food that you're gonna eat and to thank their creator kind of for everything. So I kind of grew up seeing her go through that process, which helped me a lot to understand where I came from. So I could say I'm from the Shan River Sioux tribe and on my dad's side, I'm from the Red Lake Ojibwe side in Minnesota. When you have an identity to claim and a culture to claim, you become more aware of who you are. It pretty much gave me what I needed and what I wanted to be successful. I thought it was really cool that they, uh, they learned about culture and identity together. Absolutely. That was really, really wonderful to see. Yeah, and that's not even the end of the story. Now Jasmine works with Native families who are in the Child Protective Services or foster system. Yeah, I met her where she works at the Andi Young Center in St. Paul. They have a culturally specific shelter for homeless youth, and they work with families involved in the foster care system. Jasmine Grieca's job is basically to be a bridge between Native families and the county child protection programs. Interesting. So here's what she says about her job. So I help the county understand why a family might be behaving a certain way. Or if a family is having a really hard time engaging with the county, I'm there to try to help engage them with the county, even though it can be hard. We've had times where, especially when it comes to court, when families are built up with emotions, a mom literally, the worker came to talk to her and the mom was like, I don't want to say anything to you. If you have something to say to me, say it to Jasmine and Jasmine can say it to me. And so it truly is to help both sides cross the bridge to see the other person's perspective. She sounds like she's really playing a powerful role in people's lives, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and we can only hope the county is learning something about how to be more helpful to Native families. Yeah. 100%. You're listening to the third episode of Native Lights Podcast where Indigenous voices shine. I'm your host, Leah Lem. And I'm your other host, Cole Primo. Our producer, Lori Stern, is with us today. Yes, I am. Hey. Hello. (laughs) Okay, so the law, the Indian Child Welfare Act, says Native kids removed from their homes need to be placed, if possible, with extended family or with their tribe so they can keep in touch with their culture and be connected to their roots which makes complete sense, right? I don't know how much you remember, Cole. You were a little bit younger. I I think I was in ninth grade, I want to say. 
I know we, uh, we brought in several foster care uh, children into our home. I remember it was an American Indian foster care uh, program. Do we know like why they decided to do that? You know, I talked to both mom and dad about it. I know I asked dad, he said, ask your mom. She wanted to do, and you know, they together wanted to do something to give back and mm-hmm. take care of the youth and the kids that were in foster care because, you know, this has been an issue for quite a while. Mm-hmm. I just remember that, you know, it was kind of cool. Oh, cool. And more kids to, you know, hang out with, more kids to babysit, <laughs> you know, yeah. which was know it was almost like you know they fit into a space that we had uh that we were almost keeping for them i agree and you know it makes me think about all the kids out there who need a place like that mm-hmm. and how many families can be that place mm-hmm. but there are a number of barriers to become a foster home Lori, you've been looking into this for a while what have you been hearing oh i've heard uh a lot of things and i think maybe Deb Foster, who works at Andai Young, put it best. She said that some Native adults, at the prospect of becoming foster families, they just want to run the other way because they think the system screwed them over in the first place. That's an interesting... And even for families who do want to foster, there are an incredible number of legal barriers. And um, I learned more about this at a foster family recruitment event at the American Indian Center in Minneapolis. Awesome. I want to hear what they got to say. Well, the first person you meet when you walk in is Lucy Favorite. Here she is. Ani, and this is Lucy Favorite. I'm with American Indian Family and Children's Services. We are here in hopes to reach people to become foster care licensed. We're needing foster homes for children in need. So Lucy Favorite has put up a booth at the Minneapolis American Indian Center, along with other agencies and representatives of local and state government. There's a feast and a raffle. And still, there are almost as many service providers as people attending. Some families who've wanted to foster have been turned down or discouraged. So this event is focused on how to overcome obstacles to fostering. What is the process if you have an eviction or an unlawful detainer, and how do you go about getting that expunged? Sorry, thanks. Um, A public uh, interest lawyer explains that expungements, where an arrest is erased in the eyes of the law, are possible, sometimes at no cost, but that if someone in the household has a criminal conviction, especially for a violent offense, that could be a deal breaker. The sponsors of the event know that prospective foster parents want to hear from other foster parents. So here's what the real experts have to say. I take a lot of older boys, 13 to 18, and once they're stable in that stable environment, they're with adults that are, that are caregiving and loving, you just watch your child grow every day, and that's, that's the biggest thing I think I get out of it. Even if we don't have these kids forever, we, some we only have for, you know, 72 hours, some we have for six, seven months. Um, it doesn't matter how long they're with us. If you can have some sort of positive impact on them, I mean, why wouldn't you? I only have one permanent foster child who's more of my own child than what I would consider a foster child. Just seeing the growth on her, it has changed my life. I grew up in and out of foster care, so I wanted to give back, and that's one of the reasons why I chose to do it, to help the other children that are out there. 
and every day they say or do something to make you laugh or to teach you a lesson to make you think about what you're doing how you're doing it how you're living life and so they are a joy I cannot tell you the difference the love I have for the children I gave birth to the kids that I have adopted and the kids that I foster they're all the same well yeah I remember uh, it was very emotional because we had a foster care child named Miguel who was basically a, a baby and it came to the point where he went back to his his family and I remember that being very emotional because you get you know you get attached to uh, the relationship and they were such wonderful members of our family. We also had a, a young girl who had fetal alcohol. Yeah, fetal alcohol syndrome. We had to adapt to her different ways of learning. Mm-hmm. I think she had she was on kind of a different track, a learning track. And, you know, all these adjustments we made to be able to get along with short-term, I guess, members of our family. Yeah, so she not only had difficulties with um, learning and stuff like that, but she had also the trauma, like you mentioned before, of being placed into foster care. It's not about us at this point, no. but you know, it did provide some perspective and I'm grateful for that and really grateful for the kids that lived with us. Yeah. And you know, I don't know where they are now, but I hope that they're doing well. Yeah. You are listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. I'm your host, Cole Primo. And I'm your other host, Leah Lem. Today, we're talking about finding family, feeling adrift and isolated, and then connecting with those people who feel warm and loving and supportive. Whether you're related or not. And our next story is about another young Native woman who's traveled this path. Shauna King. Yeah, Shauna is an advocate for parents and children at the Indian Child Welfare Law Center in Minneapolis. She's also the vice chair of the American Indian Family Services Center in St. Paul. And she's a parent mentor. She's been honored with multiple awards because of this work. In 2016, she got this Casey Excellence for Children Award, which is a big deal. Wow. She sounds like a rock star. Pretty much. Uh, In a nutshell, she helps birth parents through the whole legal process when they're referred to child protective services. She knows exactly what she's doing. She's been through the system herself. When we met, I asked her to share her story about her work. So there was this mom. It's not probably the best story to tell. It's probably a negative story. I'm, I'm not a huge supporter of termination. People did not get addicted in a year. You know what I mean? They didn't fuck their whole lives up in one year. But they have to get all, everything all together in one year is really hard. Even for somebody who's not addicted, it's hard. But there was one mom who was in and out of jail, and I would go and visit her on treatment, and she was prostituting, and she got pregnant. And I remember that her kids were in foster care and she would give me her email thing and the foster mom would always send pictures of her baby after it was born. She would always ask me if I could print off her, she'd say, can you print them up and bring them to me in jail? So I would. And I remember the day that she terminated her rights. It was the only time I cried in court. She came in and she didn't have glasses and I knew she wore glasses and she couldn't see. Foster mom came and brought her little boy. He had this long hair, and he's walking around. I'm just the most adorable little Indian boy. And she's just, like, going like this, trying to see him from the thing, and it was just sad. And I know she she loved him. She didn't want to do this, you know what I mean? 
And I just remember the foster mom raised her hand at the end of things up and was like, I just want you to know that I love your son and I love you. And please get your life together because this little boy needs you. And I'm going to be here for him. But he wants you back. And, and I was just bawling. And she just this whole speech that she had given. And I was like, that's the way it should be. You know what I mean? That's what should happen. That's they should be an family. extended support for parents and that child. And she's like, I will never take your place as his mom, ever. And I knew that she wasn't ready to change her life yet. And so did that foster mom. But that foster mom still believed that she was the mom. Wow. How respectful and kind. Yeah, she was really worried about uh, sharing that story because it was about a parent terminating her rights to her child. Shauna's goal was to help in a way, like you said, that was as kind and respectful as possible. She has also helped parents get their kids back. In fact, there was this one time with another mom that made her totally sure that this was what she was meant to do. Long story short, I was taking her, she got her kids, and I um, was taking her to get food stamps or something. Her baby was sleeping. I'm like, I'll just wait in the car with the baby. He was going. And her baby woke up, obviously, when she was in there. So I was holding that baby. And I just swear to you, I was holding this baby, and she was smiling at me. And I felt like I could see kind of like that deep blue, and her eyes were brown, like this inner star thing, like this connection with her. And I was like, this is why I'm doing this. So this baby can never feel how I felt as a child. You know what I mean? And it was just probably one of the best experiences I've ever had. It's just like I could feel her soul. And I was like, this is why I'm doing this. You know what I mean? I don't get to spend a lot of time with the kids. I usually spend the time with the parents. But, you know, just that reality of, you know what, this is why, this that, why it's important for this mom to have this support. You know, this little one right here. Shauna King grew up in what she calls a really, really small town in North Dakota called Mapleton. So it was all white. Shauna, who's half black and half native, never knew her father. It's her mother who's native. Her mother married a man who was abusive to Shauna. So she was 14 when she entered the foster care system. I was in four different foster care homes in four years. I was 14 and I got out of foster care at 17. Um, so three years. And um, they're all white. And... I never had a, a good experience, you know? After getting out of the foster care system, Shauna says she was still searching for that love that comes from a supportive parental figure. And it was in her early 30s, Shauna had her first experience with heroin. So I met somebody and they, I didn't know, but they had a, an addiction. And then one night they're like, well, I couldn't get pills, so I got some heroin, I hope you don't care. And I was like, I don't care what you do. 40 seconds later, it was the first time in my life that I didn't have, like everything just went away and I felt okay. All my anxiety, all these bricks, all this trauma was just gone. And it was just like, whoa, and then I got it. Then I got why he was addicted. And I was addicted for three years. And I, in those three years, I absolutely lost everything I had, everything. It was just awful, selling my food stamps. I was just not a good, good person. Then. She hit rock bottom, a turning point in her life. I OT'd. 
in a public park with um, my son, who's in a wheelchair. They took me to jail and I was in there for 33 days and I didn't know where my kids were. I didn't know what was happening and I had nobody to call. That's when her own kids entered the foster care system. I found out from my lawyer that my sister had called and she told them that she wanted to take my daughter and that I needed to put, that they needed to put my son in a home and I would never be a good parent. I would never heal. I would just, you know, I'm just a horrible loss to life. And, you know, and, and so I felt like I had to not only fight my family, but fight the state. And then my kids went into foster home, and then the foster homes wanted my kids. So then I had to fight my family, the foster homes, and the, the county. And it was, it was rough. But she was given a case plan, a way to get her kids back. And so she worked at it. I, I was required to do treatment, find suitable housing, complete my um, probation, continue with drug court, and that was pretty much what was it. Eventually, she regained custody of her children, but reunification with her daughter was a struggle. Reunification is one of the hardest things. I mean, we still have issues today. Um, and I don't blame her for feeling the way she feels. I've apologized, and I can only be the best mom I can be. Healing is hard, you know? Yeah. Like, just think of a cut. Okay, I'm going to go off topic. But how much energy your body puts into healing a cut? or a wound. So I'd imagine that's hard work. Through that hard work, she eventually went to college and now works with families to find the best possible outcomes for children and their parents. She's won multiple awards, and she even had like a camera crew following her around. Ooh, camera crew. <laughs> that's fancy. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask her where she got the strength to get through all this. I think that my ancestors are really behind me. I think that they fought for us to be here. You know, um, and that when I talk or when I walk, they're with me. And I really, truly believe that's where I get it from. Because I believe a lot of my ancestors signed a lot of those treaties believing that their great, great, great grandchildren would get educated in the white man's ways and then fight and turn around the rights back for Native American people. And I think that's starting now. I really have been thinking a lot about that more recently, how our ancestors are behind us. And I really like this reminder, you know, no matter your state, no matter, you know, where you are in life and what what's happening, if you're like, you know, on top of your game or maybe in a valley, so to speak, the ancestors are there as a form of strength. And it's for everybody. Yeah, Shauna's story is one of those that some folks don't really want to talk about. Like, you don't want to pigeonhole her as a victim or listen to another story of a Native person addicted. But I think she shares her story as a way to show that there is hope. You are not a fuck-up. You are not hopeless. And there needs to be better resources and better support for families. Shauna had this great quote. She said, The government can't raise a good child, but community and people can. And I think there needs to be places where people can go to say, I need to get out of this lifestyle. Can you help me? You know, but there's no place like that. Yep, because removing kids from their families is traumatic. Yeah. When we had foster children in our home, 
when we were kids, being young. Like, I didn't grasp how how crazy it was for them. And, like, I didn't really put myself in their shoes as much as I probably should have. I think it really hit me when one of the kids had a problem with bedwetting. Mm. And at first I was like, ew, right? Mm. Like, his wedding's bed, you know, he's older. Why is he doing that? And then our parents would talk to us and kind of tell a little bit more about why why he's in foster care and this outward uh, manifestation of a reaction to trauma. Yeah, it's a big deal. So, our last story is a little different. Yep. We've heard Shauna talk about connecting with her ancestors and finding her purpose. Yeah, and before that, we heard from Jasmine and Heidi about finding their family together and connecting with their Ojibwe culture. So now, we are talking with a woman who was adopted away from her Native family. Yeah, and this happened a lot. Uh, There was a period of time starting in the 1940s -hmm. when Native kids were not put in foster care. They were actually simply removed from their native homes and adopted by non-native families. Some call it the adoption era. I don't even know what to say about that. I mean, outrageous is such a simple word for heart-wrenching. Just being fractured from your heritage, yes. Right. So. Yeah, and now those children who were taken, they're adults, and some want to find their families. That is where Sandy Whitehawk comes in. Yeah, Sandy's a director of the First Nations Repatriation Institute, and she also leads the Indian Orphans Association, which helps Native people find families. She's a member of Rosebud Sioux. The Sichangu Yate? Yeah. Also known as Sichangu Lakota from Rosebud? Yeah, so she's Sichungo, but she didn't make it back to her home until she was 35 years old. Ooh. So her relatives there helped her get strong and reconnect with her spiritually rich heritage. Now she's dedicated to doing that for other families who are torn apart by foster care and adoption. Wow. Our producer, Lori Stern, is still hanging out with us. Yep. And she knows Sandy Whitehawk. Yeah, Sandy is a passionate person on this subject. You know, she's got the historical analysis down, and what she says is that around 1940, social workers began comparing conditions on reservations to middle-class white homes. The government had a policy to remove us, and I think it's time to start referring to it as the adoption era. Instead of trying to figure out how they could help families get running water or get electricity in their home, they removed children instead. Why would they do that? Racist. So now Sandy's organization, the Indian Orphans Association, is helping those grown children find their families. So they host gatherings, they look through archival documents, and they travel to reservations and homelands to find family roots. Wow, that's neat. Yeah, it's really cool. I, um, Sandy invited me to a day-long ceremony where people who grew up in foster care or adopted out are welcome to come back and be part of the Native community. And this day-long ceremony was at the Minneapolis American Indian Center. So I'm going to play some tape from that day, and the first voice you hear is Sandy's. But make sure you take care of our grandmas here, and I think that's all I am going to do now. A couple dozen men and women sit in a circle. (laughs) They're young and old. They've come from the coasts and from down the street. They're gathering because they're all related, and they're telling each other how they're related. 
This is Jan, who's 70 years old and not very tall. My adoptive family, they were 6'4", 6'5". You know, I knew I wasn't a part of them. 11 years ago, I came into the community. Um, my journey was long, and I, if it wasn't for Sandy, I probably still wouldn't know. In 2011, Jan saw a newspaper picture that was taken on the White Earth Reservation. It was Sandy Whitehawk at a welcome home ceremony. By then, Jan knew she'd been born on White Earth. Sandy and tribal court judge Anita Finday helped Jan get her records. But it still took Jan years to make the trip up to Natawash, where she was born. And then I found County Road 4, and I whip up there. And I'm expecting a small resort town, you know. I find these little bait shop grocery stores with gas pumps that are at least 60 years old. And then I go on and I go over a hill looking for downtown Natawash. There's a meadow. And I'm going, uh, what happened to the town? So I turned around and then I realized St. Anne's Catholic Church is there. And then across the street is the cemetery. And I found half my relatives that had passed. And I go over these two tall crosses, white marble, and there were my grandparents. So it was no longer just on paper. It was actually, it was real. It was real. Jan eventually found a great aunt who was able to tell her stories from four generations ago. You know, when you're on your, your ancestors' ground and they're doing the wiping of the tears ceremony, it's, it's unbelievable. We camped out and the next morning woke up, sat outside with friends and had coffee and looking all around. And this is where my ancestors were. No matter all the documentation saying who's your family member, but going to that place and seeing it and how she said that made it real. That was really powerful to me. That feeling of knowing where you belong. And I love how it's so, she talks about it so simply, you know, sat outside with friends and had coffee. Like that is so beautifully simple. So Lori, you were there. What was that like? Oh, it was incredibly moving. I mean, Jan's was an amazing story, but there were others um, and there were more than a dozen people sitting around in chairs listening and sharing. And then when the circle was done, um, everybody moved downstairs into the powwow grounds at the Indian Center for a powwow. So anyway, my name's Nelson, and this is welcoming our children back to community. We're at the powwow grounds and us adoptees are going to be a part of that. It's more of a healing powwow than a regular powwow. And this is just our staging area. The well-known MC Jerry Dearly is at the podium. The veterans, drummers, and dancers in regalia are taking their places. The stands are nearly full, and there are lots of little kids. So it's important for all the community to come and see us, including children, because, you know, everybody has a culture and we all need to learn it. <laughs> what do you know about your culture? I'm Lakota. I'm Dakota. And Dakota. And Dakota. Yeah, and he goes to an Dakota immersion school. 
Badote. Yeah, so he learns the language daily. Um, so it's pretty cool. I'm very excited to see what the future holds. <laughs> You can feel the optimism and community at the powwow. After the drummers and the Cheyenne River Veterans Honor Guard, the relatives dance as Sandy welcomes them from the podium. Good afternoon, good day, and greetings to everyone who's come here today. Those relatives who stand out here are those who have made their way back to their people. Some of now there's technology like Ancestry.com that offers information about genetic relationships. Connections are possible through social media like Facebook. But family? That takes a vision of people like Sandy Whitehawk and a community that's growing stronger and bigger thanks to homecomings like the one Jan had. I, I don't have that emptiness anymore, so I'm strong. Hang in there. If you don't know who your family is when the time is right, you know, our Creator, He answers prayer. It's such a deep topic. Does the Indian Orphans Association have a website or some place where we can find a bit more about what they do and the history of adoption in the U.S.? You can basically just search Sandy Whitehawk and you'll find a bunch of information on what she's doing. Oh, that's great. And I know there's a, a radio documentary that Melissa Olson worked on, mm. who's another uh, Native radio person. It's called Stolen Childhoods. So I believe you can just search for that, too. Okay. we've seen throughout this show, like they're building community around finding family, right? So it's almost like going back to how family was bigger than just your small unit. It was this extended tapestry of people, aunties, uncles, you know, cousins. Oh my God, how many cousins can you have, right? More than you can count. <laughs> you know, and remembering and reinstilling and embracing that family is community and community is family. Mm. I like that. I mean, there's the system of foster care, but just seeing these people's stories is very inspiring. Yeah, exactly. So, that brings us to the end of the episode of Native Lights. Next time? Yeah, next time we're talking about creating safe and healing spaces. Spaces where people can have hard conversations, where stories can come to light. My name's Alicia and I'm a survivor. You are! Oh, I love you so My story is a story that I'm still uncovering and is relatively new, but it also doesn't feel new. It, it feels like things are making sense now. It's not something anyone talks about. Right. Because there's no support network. Yeah. There's no, there's like nothing. nothing. That's next time. Today we want to thank Heidi and Jasmine Grika, Lucy Favorite, Shauna King, Sandy Whitehawk, and all the families who shared about their foster parenting experience. Thanks also to our engineer, Justice Sanchez, our project manager, Aaron Warhol, producers, Lori Stern, and Melissa Townsend. 
The song we are going to leave you with is called Cloud Stripes. It's my song, but Cole's on guitar. Little feet Stand on tiptoes Pushing off Away from earth Thumbs up Like a rocket ship Reaching for The daytime moon Cloud stripes Up to the sky Cloud stripes Higher than high His eyes Are two little stars When he turns To smile at me He's attracted To my arms A mother's son Gravity Cloud stripes Up to the sky Cloud stripes Higher than high Cloud stripes Up to the sky Cloud stripes Higher than high When it comes to laughing He knows how to make me When it comes to playing He knows how to move me When it comes to fooling He knows how to fool me When it comes to laughing He knows how to make me When propulsion from his feet Overcomes the force muscle His blast off will be complete We built him so he can leave all cloud stripes Up to the sky Cloud stripes Higher than high Cloud stripes Up to the sky Cloud stripes Higher than high When it comes to laughing He knows how to make me When it comes to playing He knows how to move me When it comes to fooling He knows how to fool me Native Lights Podcast, where Indigenous stories shine, is a production of Minnesota Native News and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities. Native Lights Podcast is made possible by funding from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and the citizens of Minnesota.